<laughs> All right. Good evening, everybody. Uh, welcome. So, um, we, uh, <laughs> Yana's saying, hooray, the closet recordings are back. It's like the old days. In fact, this is more like uh, one of those occasions uh, on which I uh, was sometimes broadcasting in my parents' basement. Remember how I used to joke uh, about that? Um, well, I'm here, uh, and as actually you can tell, uh, very sharp observers will be able to tell from the poster behind me, I'm here at Old Orchard Beach in Maine, uh, where I'm on vacation with my family. Um, I am, uh, it's, I, I, there's like no internet here, <laughs> and the Wi-Fi, the, uh, the, the cell signal is very bad, uh, and I'm operating on a mobile hotspot here. So, um, the, uh, the, the, the connection is not great, which means... Please do keep me posted if you if the sound goes out on you. I want to make sure I don't... I mean, there's a chance I might lose audio or something. Um, if the connection gets too bad, I might have to cut the video uh, in order to try to preserve the audio. Um, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, Sarah King says it uh, needs a little more traffic to add to the atmosphere. Sarah, uh, 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 the, the, the internet connection isn't quite as good as there uh, when I was uh, out on the back porch that time, Sarah, uh, in my other vacation this summer. But at least, um, uh, at least I am indoors here this evening. And I'm actually I'm, I'm in my, uh, I'm in my parents' little bungalow, so I don't keep any of the little children up uh, in the house where I'm sleeping in next door. Um, but anyway, so I, I, I apologize. I do hope that uh, even if some bits of tonight in the broadcast are a little bit rough, I do hope that the recording, um, certainly the recording of the audio, will be clean. So if there are bits that you miss, um, uh, I hope we can, we can at very least get a, get a clean recording so you can catch up on it afterwards. I think we'll be okay. Um, I've, had, I've uh, broadcast a couple times uh, over this week so far, and it's been all right, though not perfect. So, But again, do keep me posted uh, if... Uh, if things get uh, start getting a little strange here, um, one uh, one one quick note. Uh, good, uh, several of you have already noticed that the uh, the chat room is back. Uh, they did in fact fix the chat room this past week. Uh, so if you go to the Laser Valerian webpage under the Mythgard Academy tab on Mythgard.org, you will find the little bouncing chat. Uh, icon in the bottom right hand corner of the page I click on there for those of you who would like to talk amongst yourselves during class here tonight uh, that's where you can go to do that and that is finally back now so that's very excellent okay Um, uh, two quick uh, announcements both things that I believe I have mentioned before but that I want to mention again Um, one is this coming Monday uh, on Monday August 3rd at 7.30pm Eastern Time um, Mythgard student Sparrow Alden is going to be giving a special guest lecture uh, explaining her results in her analysis of Tolkien's word usage in The Hobbit really fascinating stuff if you if you uh, Really wanted to be to 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 see, for instance, exactly how Tolkien went about changing uh, Chapter Five of The Hobbit between 1937 and 1951 when he went back and did the Lord of the Rings compatible version. There are, of course, parts of the of the of the chapter that he took out and other parts that he replaced. Even more fascinating are looking at some of the ways in which he's changed the tone of the whole chapter through some of the word changes that he's made, some of the some of the, the usage changes that he's made over the course of the chapter. Really, really fascinating stuff. Um, and um, Sparrow is onto some onto some really, really neat uh, things there. Uh, for those of you who saw 
Dr. Uh, Mike Drought's talk earlier this year um, on his Lexomics project and how he's applying that to Beowulf, and he was looking at sort of Tolkien's analysis of Beowulf and uh, what he, Mike Drought, is able to uh, to find uh, by using his Lexomics program to study Be- to study Beowulf. Uh, Sparrow is actually using that same program, and she's applying it to The Hobbit instead of to Beowulf, and it's really fascinating stuff. So I encourage you uh, to, uh, uh, to to check that out. That's again Monday uh, at 7.30. I'm going to post the registration link for those of you who are here um, so that you can see that. So there you go. Um, the second thing I wanted to uh, I wanted, and again, I know I've, I've mentioned this before, but that I just wanted to emphasize again tonight is uh, the really amazing opportunity this coming fall to be able to take Tolkien's class with John Garth. I've been rereading uh, John Garth's book uh, here in the last week as I have, uh, you know, so reading John Garth's book and reading the Lays of Beleriand as we're doing, you know, studying Tolkien's early work and, and, and reading some of John's work on Tolkien's, uh, you know, on, on Tolkien's life and uh, his, his sort of influences during that period. Um, uh, John Garth is just such a, a wonderful uh, uh reader and such a, a wonderful thinker about, you know, such a careful researcher uh, into into Tolkien's life and history. Um, it's going to be a really amazing class, just a wonderful opportunity uh, to be able to really get into um, Tolkien's early life and thinking about his work in the context of his early life. Um, I know it's, it's, it's so easy for many people to kind of freeze Tolkien um, at, in the, like, Hobbit and Lord of the Rings part of his life, right? Uh, to be sort of thinking about what we get in those books and to sort of think of what Tolkien says there as what Tolkien thinks, right? Um, but of course, it he took a while getting there and there were a lot of ideas that he had and a lot of ways that he was thinking about his works uh, prior to that. Um, and so really kind of trying to get your head around where Tolkien came from uh, in his own process of building his mythology and writing these stories uh, is, 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 I think, so instructive and so, uh, so very illuminating um, of his later work. So I, I, I certainly hope uh, that you guys will check out Tolkien's Wars in Middle-Earth, John Garth's class uh, that he's offering this coming fall. All right. Well, let's get back to the Lays of Balerion. Today we are studying that kind of bridge chapter, right? The two features of the Lays of Balerion are the alliterative Lay of the Children of Hurin, which we've already talked about, and the alliter- and the, the Lay of Lathian, which we are about to move to. But in the middle of the book, there's this one short chapter on, on uh, you know, poems early abandoned. And of course, they're quite short. Um, these are not, you know, one could say that the, the, the alliterative lay of the children of Hurin was early abandoned in the sense that he only got, uh, you know, well under halfway through that poem. Um, but of course, the other, uh, the, the poems that are in that, that middle chapter are very, very early abandoned, right? They're, they're really quite short little stubs. Um, but I think that there's a lot that we can gain from them. You know, when you read Christopher Tolkien's commentary that he includes with those po- those poetic snippets there uh, in the central chapter, you can see, as is appropriate, what Christopher Tolkien's editorial focus is. That is, he is primarily interested in what we can see about the development of Tolkien's ideas, about the development of his mythology um, in these little snippets. And his commentary is almost entirely focused uh, in that light, which is one of the reasons why 
I'm not going to focus on that quite so much because I think Christopher Tolkien does an excellent job of, of sort of showing and pointing out the, the really interesting and important bits uh, about those poems. What I want to be doing instead is thinking about what these poems show us about um, sort of about Tolkien, uh, Tolkien's impulse as a writer at this time. Let me explain what I mean by that. Let's think back to the context, right? When he's when we get these 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 poetic things, you know, we've talked about this before, but just for a quick review, so we remember the book of Lost Tales, which he was working on for a long time and and had written so much of, has hit a snag, right? He's going to have to go back and revise it completely. You know, he's decided he's got to revise it completely, and and he sort of leaves it aside. So what's he going to do instead? As we discussed at the beginning of the class, he's going to he's going to turn he's going to focus on first one of his great tales the Children of Huron, and then he's going to turn to another one, the Lay of Lathian. Um, and those are very conspicuous, right? The story of Turin Turambar and the story of Baron and Luthien are two of the biggest, most important stories that he ever developed. He's going to come back to those again and again. Those are going to be the ones that we will see him focusing on more, really, than any other of his Silmarillion stories. Um, so the point is he, that I would make here is that it's easy to mistake this middle period in the 20s, right? The 1920s is basically the time frame of the, of, of the, the Lays of Balerion, the entire Lays of Balerion. So we're getting from, from the Book of Lost Tales period in the late teens up through when he's writing The Hobbit and when he's coming at the Silmarillion again uh, from abroad uh, standpoint, starting to move the whole Silmarillion story as a chronicle forward again. Um, and in that decade in between, in the 20s, we have these two long poems. But the situation, that this, this, this central chapter, I find to be a complete game-changer in a sense. Like we don't get much out of these poems, but to me it really changes how I look at this decade as a whole, right? Um, that is to say, what we're seeing in Tolkien's poetry this decade is more than just Tolkien's sort of obsession with these two particular stories, right? This is not a question of, well, I don't have time to write the Book of Lost Tales, so I think I'm just going to go back and I'm going to I'm going to try to do justice to my two favorite stories, right? Um, again, that would suggest that the primary impulse that Tolkien was experiencing in this decade is to tell those stories, right? Is to do justice to those stories. Um, and I don't... I think that this central chapter where we see his very short attempt uh, at a poetic version of the Fall of Gondolin, uh, his attempt at the, uh, uh, the Flight of the Noldoli, his attempt uh, at the Eärendil poem, um, I think that what these, what these suggest to me is that it's not just about his desire to tell these two stories, but rather a much more general impulse to treat these stories, to treat the stories of the First Age, to, tre- to treat the... the uh, the, the the Book of Lost Tales material in an epic register and at epic length. Okay? Um, and to write them in verse. Right? That's another really, really important thing. And a major shift from the Book of Lost Tales. Um, that we see him decide, okay, no, I'm gonna I'm I'm, I'm gonna stick with these stories. I wanna come but rather than going back and revising the Book of Lost Tales, I wanna do something different. And the different thing that he wanted to do was not just to tell sort of short overviews of these stories all threaded together within his frame tale, as in the Book of Lost Tales, but instead to take the, the sort of the most pivotal, the most exciting of these, not just the two big ones, but many others, 
and say, I want to give this a full epic poetry treatment. And again, they're all of them in verse. It's, it's, that's more than, that's way beyond coincidence, right? It shows very clearly that his creative impulse during this time, his storytelling impulse during this time, has shifted from the Book of Lost Tales period entirely to verse. In a sense, the 20s are, are, are the most active poetic period of Tolkien's entire life. You can see this even when you look at the poems that he wrote, the totally not unrelated to the mythology, or, well, that's a little hard. Many of his poems are related to the mythology, even if they're not part of the story. But, um, but again, when you look at uh, at the, the the other poems that he wrote at this time, even poems like the Man in the Moon poems and uh, and the uh, the the Freaks of Physiologus, that is the you know the uh, Yumbo or you kind of elephant and uh, Fastatakalon, um, both of which the former heavily revised uh, made it into the Adventures of Tom Bombadil. Um, all of those, all of those kinds of poems, the Bimble Bay poems. Um, you know, he's he's writing poetry. He's writing so much poetry during this period. In the the class on Tolkien's poetry that uh, that I just finished uh, last week at Mythgard, um, we read a whole lot of his poems from the twenties. But it's not just that he's writing all these other poems. It's that his entire creative process for his legendarium has shifted into a poetic mode during this decade too. So I, the 1920s are like uh, uh, the, the, you know, the, it's like the decade of poetry where Tolkien seems to have made the conscious choice in coming from the Book of Lost Tales, seems to have made the conscious po- choice No, poetry, an epic poetry mode, a long form narrative poem this is the best way for me to tell these stories. This is the way in which I really want these stories to be told and to be read and to be published. Because don't forget, as I've mentioned before, he actually had submitted, um, in a, you know, he actually will submit the lay, the lay of Lathian for consideration by Alan and Unwin to publish when he publishes The Hobbit and they love it and they ask him for something more and he's like, I don't have a sequel, but uh, what do you think of this, right? Um so we know that even even then, now almost a, a whole decade later, by the end of the 30s, he's still looking back and thinking of the Lay of Lathian as, like, the thing. Uh, you know, when he's talking about wanting to get some of his Silmarillion stuff published, it's the Lay of Lathian that he's trying to get published. Um, so again, he seems, to, he seems to be believing here, during the 20s, that the the sort of destiny, in a sense, it's a melodramatic way to say it, but the sort of the destiny of his of his legendarium, the destiny of his stories, is as long-form ec- epic poems, which is kind of a, a sort of a mind-blowing idea, right? For those of us, uh, you know, who have all kind of, you know, grown up in the post-Lord of the Rings period, um, you know, thinking of Tolkien, of course, primarily as the great fantasy novelist of the 20th century, uh, not novelist, he always uh, hated being called a novelist and hated the Lord of the Rings being called a novel. Uh, it's a romance, he always said, not a, not a novel. But um, anyway, so th- there's... It's as I say. It's kind of strange for us, uh, looking backwards, to sort of imagine the young Tolkien, and he's still—he's not, you know, a teenager. Of course, we're talking in the twenties, so Tolkien is in his early thirties. This is, um, this is, uh, yeah. It's mostly—it's sort of the the it, around the first half of his thirties is what we're talking about. Um, so here's this guy in his thirties. Uh, you know, settling down, having kids, teaching in his first, you know, real teaching position at the University of Leeds, uh, and deciding where he wants his creative life to go is as 
a modern English epic poet. A modern English epic poet writing primarily in old and uh, uh, and even uh, sort of throwback medieval modes, like the alliterative poetry uh, that he's doing. Um, but... Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Tom Hillman says he's writing epic poetry. He's writing alliterative epic poetry while Fitzgerald is writing The Great Gatsby. Exactly. Yes, yes. That's 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 precisely what's happening. Um, and at the same time, of course, that you know, sort of the the the, the revolutions of English poetry are happening. Um, you know, we're getting you know we're we're getting Ezra Pound and uh, you know some of the early T. S. Eliot and um, you know and 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 Joyce is out there, right? All this is happening at about that time. So while English poetry, um, the English poetry world, is sort of kind of revolving, well, it's an exaggeration to say it's revolving around Ezra Pound. He, Ezra Pound certainly felt that it was, uh, but uh, perhaps it's giving him too much credit. But anyway, as, uh, as, as the, the 20th century is you know, going into doing its modernist thing uh, and starting to shift away uh, from traditional poetic forms, here's Tolkien cheerfully setting out to make a career for himself as an epic poet writing alliterative verse. It's a little. It seems a little crazy, right? It's very strange. It's very different. Um, but but again, I think this chapter gives us a more clear view of that than anywhere else. This is not just. I love the story of the children of Hurin, and what the heck, I'm going to do it in alliterative verse, right? It's more than that. It's you know we we can see a kind of plan or at least a notion, right? I want to tell all of these stories, uh, in uh, in in epic verse. It's uh, it's amazing. Amazing. Um, okay, let's see. Uh, let's see a couple questions here. Shelby uh, asks a good question: Had Tolkien created his languages in depth at this point, or did they come after he had been working on his languages already? Now, the process of his language creation goes back a really long time and is long and complicated. And uh, and uh, you know, to to um, it's a tricky qu- question shall be therefore to answer simply that is to say if by his two languages you know his his, his languages you mean Quenya and Sindarin the answer is sort of right they had different names at this point they were they were still to undergo a lot of development i mean he was kind of tinkering with uh with the forms of his languages for a really long time like arguably his whole life but um but to to speak Vaguely, you know, to speak generally, yes, yes, he had um, already invented his languages. Um, you can see the basically the chronology of his language development and of his story writing bears out the description that he gives of it um, in that the preface to the second edition of the Fellowship of the Ring, when he says that uh, that his 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 work, you know, you know his uh, story of the Legends of the Elder Days, um, was principally linguistic. Uh, in inspiration, and was designed uh, to give a kind of a sort of an appropriate background of history for the development of elvish tongues. And I know that when people read that in the preface, it kind of seems like it's probably an exaggeration, right? Like, are you really telling me that it's not that you wrote those languages in order to sort of flesh out your story, right? Are you really telling me? That you invented the languages first, and are just like I need some explanation for these langu- how these languages came about. So I'm going to make all, all these stories, and that's 
how he wrote the Silmarillion? And the answer seems to be, yeah, pretty much. That's exactly how it happened. Um, and uh, I, I, I mean, I don't know. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I don't know what to say there. But uh, but that's that's. Uh, I mean, I can't that whole con that whole concept is so alien to me it's one of the things that i find you know tolkien's i, I really I, I i like language and i i love learning about tolkien's languages um but i am not, i do i do not myself share tolkien's passion for philology the you know the, the passion for understanding the the nature of languages and the changes of languages which you know fueled so much of tolkien's imaginative life is kind of alien to me so i really can't imagine uh, uh, sort of composing stories in that way and for those reasons. <laughs> Sarah King with a statement which is a nominee for understatement of the day. Tolkien is a bit of a nerd. Yes, yes, he was a bit of a nerd. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, I, you know, like doing the whole I'm going to tell, I'm going to write these, like, over the course of my career, thousands of pages of stories um, just in order to give a bit of, uh, a bit of background to uh, to 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 make sense of these languages that I've made, <clears throat> yeah, that's that's kind of uh, that's uh, you know Tolkien was kind of a super geek when it came to that stuff. But hey, you know that's 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 cool. We all I think we we all we all like and appreciate that. Um, okay, so now as I said, coming back coming back to these poems and looking at uh, at these snippets of poems tonight, um, what I want to do. So, having thought about where kind of where Tolkien's mind is, where his where it seems like where where the evidence here suggests his concept of his own kind of creative career here is, um, as I said, Christopher Tolkien's interest is on the tracing the, the development of the, of the mythology. We're not gonna. I mean, that, that's that's awesome, but that's not what we're gonna do. Um, I want to see what we see from these as stories, what we can hear in these as poems, um, what we can what we can learn from this, what kind of stories Tolkien seems to be writing. And then at the end of class today, we're going to transition into looking, uh, looking towards the Lay of Lathian and actually getting back to, uh, uh, to discussing the uh, poem, the Le Light as Leaf on Linden Tree poem that we didn't get back to last time. Um, but, um, okay, let's, uh, I want to start with the third of the poems that Christopher Tolkien presents, um, and I want to do that mostly on the strength of the fact that uh, Christopher mentioned in his commentary that he believes that this one was probably the first of the three, um, of these three snippets to have been written, and that it probably even predates the Lay of the Children of Hurin. Um, and uh, so I thought that seemed a sensible place to begin, therefore, on that reason. Now, of course, it makes a certain amount of sense uh, that he would begin with a Fall of Gondolin uh, poem, as, of course, the Fall of Gondolin appears to be where pretty much all of the stories began. Uh, the uh, the prose version of the Fall of Gondolin, the one that's included in the Book of Lost Tales, uh, and the longest, fullest version of the Fall of, uh, the Fall of Gondolin that he ever wrote anywhere um, through the entire rest of his life... Um, that uh, uh, that was again. That's it's 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 the very earliest surviving story, as far as we know and understand correctly, uh, that we have uh, of, of Tolkien's work. So, uh, so it, it kind of makes sense that uh, when he decides, hey, no, I'm going to do a poetry, you know, a poetic version of these stories, that he would say, hey, wait, why not start with the Vall of Gondolin? Look at what we have here. So, first of all. Uh, I want you. I, wa I want you guys to tell me what are we looking at here, poetically speaking. What are we listening to? What is the form 
of this poem as we get it. This is only this is only a well, it's, it's only a small section. It's only about half of the snippet that we have. Um, but uh, but listen to the sound of this and how this poem works. And again, as I read it, tell me what you notice about about its meter and about its sound. Make note too of any sort of particularly interesting images or sort of story snippets that we get. And uh, please enter your observations in the questions box as we go, and I'll come back to those after I read it. "'Twas the bent blades of the Glamhoth that drank Fingolfin's life, as he stood alone by Feanor, but his maiden and his wife were wildered as they sought him in the forests of the night, in the pathless woods of Doriath, so dark that as a light of palely mirrored moonsheen were their slender elfin limbs, straying among the black holes where only the dim bat skims from Thu's dark delved caverns, their ale saw that sheen, and he caught the white-limbed Isfin, that she ever since hath been his mate in Doriath's forest, where she weepeth in the gloom. In the gloam, excuse me, where she weepeth in the gloam, for the dark elves were his kindred that wander without home. Okay. What do you notice? What do you hear here? Okay, good. Karina first, it rhymes, right? Good and excellent initial observation. Okay, um, the first thing that we can notice, of course, is that this is not alliterative meter, right? This is a syllabic meter, um, uh, and that is to say, it's it's one that's you know the alliterative meters. You don't count the syllables, right? You only count the beats. Um, this is a syllabic meter, and uh, just in just in couplets, right? James, you're right. There are repeated consonants here or there. We do get alliteration more than occasionally in this in these verses, right? Um, in fact, we can see the alliteration creeping up quite a bit. Not in any, at least not in, in not in any obvious pattern that I discern. Again, it's not following uh, the alliterative verse pattern, certainly. But we do hear the alliteration, right? The bent blades. Uh, even things like were wildered, right? Um, of Doriath, so dark, mirrored moonsheen. Um, dark delved. Uh, 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 line 10. Line 10 is correct. That is, it's correct on the slide. That's what it's that's what is printed in the book. Straying among the black holes where only the dim bat skims. I got... That's got to be a mistake, though. That can't be right, can it? Black holes? Surely it's black bowls? Straying among the black bowls? B-O-L-E-S? Like the trunks of trees? He's not... He's not straying... They're not straying among the holes. They're in the trees. They're in the forest. Right? And black bowls alliterates, just like bent blades and mirrored moonsheen and dark delved, right? That, that we, where we do see the pattern, the only pattern that we do see in, in the alliteration is that tendency towards repeated words like that, right? Um, adjacent words alliterating. So I'm looking at that and I'm like, is that a mistake? I wonder if that's a mistake. I wonder, is that, is that the publisher's mistake? Is it Christopher's mistake? Heck, might it even have been. J.R. Tolkien's mistake. I mean, maybe he miswrote it. I don't know, but it's. I, I'm just looking at that. And I'm like, surely he must have meant black bowls, right? Um, but anyway, um, a 
Okay, but so so anyway, getting back to the to the observations, we do as James points out, we do get alliteration. Notice what else this verse these verses, these lines have in common with alliterative verse. Again, it's not the alliterative meter. But you notice what else they have in common? There's another way in which the sound of these <laughs> Tom Hillman is suggesting no, it's actually black voles. Right, yeah, yeah, no, Tom, I'm sure that's it. Yes. There were all these black rodents around with the dim bats skimming uh, through them. That's probably that's probably it. Um, absolutely good. Kate and Erica and Nancy and Curita, excellent. Uh, 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 coming straight out of the poetry class, they're all tuned to this. Absolutely, there's a break in the middle of the lines. The shape of all of these lines um, is that there's there is a break in the middle. Every single line doesn't have a a, a, a syntactic break, uh, like a comma or a period or a semicolon, but many of them do, and even of the ones that don't, there is a there is sort of a, a kind of cesura in the middle. "'Twas the bent blades of the Glamhoth that drank Fingolfin's life as he stood alone by Feanor, but his maiden and his wife were wildered as they sought him in the forests of the night, in the pathless woods of Doriath, so dark that as a light of palely mirrored moonsheen." Even the way, um, Kate, as you had pointed out before, there's a lot of enjambment in these uh, uh, in these lines, you know, it it, it it moves on right so dark that is a light of palely mirrored moonsheen, where their slender elfin limbs straying among the black bowls, where only the dim bat skims from Thu's dark delved caverns. Period. Their ale saw that sheen. Um, yeah, yeah. I, the flow of the lines here also reminds me of alliterative verse. Um, that is, you know, you may remember, or, you know, if, if you sort of think back to kind of the cadences of the alliterative lines in the way of the children of Hurin, that was pretty common. It's pretty common for Tolkien to sort of end his sentence, for instance, in the middle of the line, at the sejura, and to use the alliteration within the alliterative line as a kind of bridge between one thought and another. Um, they're, they're, those lines, the alliterative lines, are pretty persistently enjammed. I mean, as you may remember from the lay of the children of Purim, one sentence, right, from uh, that would you tend to span many, many lines, right? And so the, 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 the ideas sort of keep flowing over um, from one line to the next, and that, that, that sense of momentum is one of the things that I find very characteristic um, of alliterative lines in general, and especially of Tolkien's usage of alliterative lines. And there's a similar, to me, there's a similar kind of feel. I think that we can see some, um, that we can see, and more importantly here, some similarities in the flow of these lines between that tendency to have the, a, a sort of a sejura in the middle of the line, um, the, and and the, the way that these uh, sentences and, and lines are structured, and then you add in, as James pointed out, that 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 tendency towards, though a non-systematic use of alliteration in these lines, and this begins to um, uh, this 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 begins to to sort of sound like syllabic poem a. a syllabic meter that really wishes it were an alliterative meter. And it's to me, it's especially interesting. Christopher doesn't mention this. You know, he doesn't talk about the, the prosody. He doesn't talk about the, the, the metrical structure of these lines in the context of his mentioning that he thought that this uh, poem, this was the first of the poems, and that it even came before the way of the children of Purim. Um, but to me, it's fascinating that if, if Christopher's right, and he did start with this, 
so he's he's come from the uh, he he's come from the Book of Lost Tales, and he says, "Okay, let's go back. Let's new plan, right? Forget the Book of Lost Tales. Let's do epic poems, right? Let's do epic poem versions of all of these. You know, let's do the Fall of Gondolin. No, no, let's do the Fall of the Noldoli. We'll do the Kinslaying and the Crossing of the Hellcarax. It's gonna be awesome, right? Okay, uh, no, 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 Arendel. That's totally what we're gonna do. We're gonna do Arendel, right? No, Children of Horror. No, absolutely the Children of Horror." That's what we're doing, right? So we see during this time, if that's what's going on in Tolkien's mind, right? Um, the idea that he starts with this one and says, "Okay, so I'm going to write an epic poetry version." So it's going to be, it's going to be in couplets, right? He's still doing. Again, I hesitate to call it modern poetry, a modern poetic style, because as I said, this is not how modern poets are writing in the twenties at all. Um, they're they're writing uh, lots of sort of free verse and experimental stuff, and specifically turning away from all of the traditional metrical styles um, of of earlier English poetry. Um, but anyway, nevertheless, it's still it's still a more modern style than alliterative verse is, uh, which had been out of fashion for many centuries, pretty much by that time. Um, what's the meter, by the way? Somebody give me the meter of this poem. Okay, so the, for those of you who didn't take the poetry class with me, the first thing to do in trying to figure out the meter of a poem, to kind of get the rhythm of it in your head, is to count the number of stressed syllables in a line, right? Forget everything else and just count the stresses. Where do the beats fall? How many beats per line? "'Twas the bent blades of the Glamhoth that drank Fingolfin's life, as he stood alone by Feanor, but his maiden and his wife were wildered as they sought him in the forests of the night, huh, in the pathless woods of Doriath, so dark that as a light of palely mirrored moonsheen were their slender elfin limbs, straying among the black bowls where only the dim bat skims." Mostly six. Some might be seven, but yeah, yeah. Uh, I think well, Sarah. I think it's iambic hexameter. Um, there's there are some that there are some that seem maybe to be seven. And iambic heptameter is one of Tolkien's favorite meters. Um, uh, you will know iambic heptameter, for instance, from the some, the elf poetry. It's uh, in the poetry class. We we we, we called that elf meter. Um, that's the uh, the the meter of Galadriel's verses, for instance. I sang of leaves of leaves of gold and leaves of gold there grew. I sang of leaves of leaves of gold and leaves of gold there grew. Um, uh, the uh, the Nimrodel poem the lines are divided but it's pretty much iambic heptameter too and cursed the faithless ship that bore him far from Nimrodel, um, uh, so it, that that seven iambic foot line is a favorite of Tolkien's, but I, this doesn't have this the feeling to me of the iambic heptameter and most of the lines I think have have pretty clearly six beats instead of seven, and they're much more irregular. They're not nothing like as smooth and regular. Um, Galadriel's I Sang of Leaves poem is almost entirely even. It's almost perfect. Every line has the perfect number of syllables. Almost every line has the perfect number of syllables in a perfectly even iambic beat. Um, If you want a special bonus, go back and read that poem carefully and find the one line where he deviates from the meter. And when you find that, you will notice an awesome thing. Uh, it's so cool. I won't spoil it for you. So go back and read that poem and find the one, the one uh, bad line uh, in the you know the one the one place where he deviates from the meter, uh, and it's so cool. But anyway, it's nothing. This poem is nothing like as regular as that, right? It's much more erratic. Again, to me, it's kind of 
tending towards the alliterative uh, line. Um, it's got the beats, but it doesn't really stick with an iambic flow. Um, it's it's still I, I would call this iambs. Where wildered as they sought him in the forests of the night is still an iambic pattern. Um, the, the the whole thing has a generally iambic pattern, but it but it, it deviates from it all over the place. Um, it has a much more irregular feeling. Um, so again, this metrically, I find this I find this poem fascinating because it sounds like a syllabic poem that really, in its heart of hearts, wishes it were an alliterative poem. And then, of course, well, what do we see? We see him turning to. Uh, Oh, you know, him just basically saying, "Forget it." Okay, fine. I'm just going to do straight up. I'm going to I'm going to adopt uh, the antiquated alliterative meter as my as my vehicle. Right? That, that's what I'm going to do. And I'm going to go. And I'm going to. And I don't care that nobody does this anymore. I'm going to sit down and I'm going to write hundreds and hundreds of lines of modern alliterative meter um, because because that's what I want to do. Um, so all by itself, even without notice, we haven't said a thing about the actual content of these lines yet, or what he's talking about in the, in this opening of the Fall of Gondolin um, story, uh, and yet we can already see some pretty interesting stuff here, right? But now thinking about the content, um, what do we see? What's interesting about the be- this beginning of the story? What's interesting about what we? get here, going back to some of the observations you guys had made before. Um, uh, Nancy, I agree that Doriath is is super creepy here. Absolutely super creepy. Um, and I don't know exactly what to do within the pathless woods of Doriath. Um, is he reimagining Doriath here? Is this the concept? I mean, the the Woods, you know, the the woods of Doriath were pathless in the sense, you know, with the girdle of Melian and stuff. Um, uh, but um, so, I mean, is that is that how we're supposed? Is that kind of the context of this? It's a little bit unclear. I mean, notice that. Uh, remember, in the published Silmarillion, Eol lives in Nan Elmoth, which is like this separate. It's like this. Uh, uh, this like little backwater of the woods of it's attached to Doriath. It's technically part of Doriath, and he's got a like he had he had to pay rent to Thingol in order to live there, grudgingly. Um, but um, uh, but you know, so it's it's not mainstream Doriath, right? So if Nan Elmoth, where Ael the Dark Elf lives, is dark and creepy, that's not Melian's fault, and it's not a reflection on Thingol. It's just it's a it's a it's it's a separately like little um, you know it's a it's a bad neighborhood in Doriath, right? Um, but that seems you know when, again when we read this we've 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 read descriptions of Doriath. I mean, of course, a big chunk of of the of the children of Hurin uh, took place in Doriath. Um, so we're, but and Doriath didn't look like this. Doriath wasn't that creepy. Again, it was hard to get in. Um, you know, they were all bewildered and everything, and about to like die of hunger and thirst and stuff. But it wasn't like Tower Nufuin, right? It wasn't like you know, remember that proto Mirkwood place where Turin was taken and where Beleg rescued him. Doriath wasn't like that, right? And yet, this makes Doriath sound almost like that. Um, so it, it, to me, it's interesting that we get, we get like. The girdle, and then Happy Doriath in the middle, right uh, in the way of the Children of Hurin. Here, in this one little glimpse of you know the the the, the place of Ale the Dark Elf, we get creepy Doriath, and then in the published Silmarillion, we get 
both, right? A little creepy neighborhood, uh, you know, sort of adjacent to nice uh, Doria. He seems to kind of kept both. And yet this impulse seems to be different. I mean, it may well turn out that, you know, had he written more of the poem, that we would, un- that, that you know, perhaps it was in fact already that this it's, all, it's only just this one bit of Doriath, right? That's creepy. There, it's not all that creepy, but I don't know. I don't know. Maybe that's not in fact the conception here. Um, in fact, again, especially if this poem predates the the iterative children of Horan, it may well be that the darkness of Tower Nefuen, um, that proto Mirkwood thing, was originally part of Tolkien's conception of Doriath, and he's kind of projected it out to Tower Nefuen, right? You know, so in when he gets to the to the way of the children, the way of the children of Horan, he takes that uh, dark and creepy Doriath separates it from Doriath itself and moves it somewhere else, but maybe it was, in, in his own mind, it seems possible that in his own imagination he was actually envisioning Doriath as being creepy, like that. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, James, that's a great question. James asks, is this the first application of Doriath? That was not its name in the Book of Lost Tales, James. It was Ar- it was Artenor uh, in the Book of Lost Tales. It's Doriath in the way of in the iterative lay of the children of Hurin. But but again, if this predates it, then yeah, this would be the first usage of Doriath. Um, I believe that that's true. Um, but uh, good. Now Brian points out, um, and, and Brian uh, Dimick points out, and somebody else was talking about this. Joe um, uh, earlier on. Um, says that um, it, it, it talks about the the light and darkness imagery. It is really stark in this passage, isn't it? Um, notice how the the white limbed Isfin, right? The uh, the slender elfin limbs of uh, uh, Fingolfin's maiden and his wife. Those are two different people, by the way. His maiden is his daughter. That would be a slightly odd way of. Uh, a very archaic way of saying that, um, but yeah, that's that's uh, that's that's so his daughter and his wife are lost, um, um, and uh, it's so dark that the moonlight, palely mirrored by their slender elfin limbs, um, looks you know white in the darkness, right? So that the, the the darkness surrounding them and them kind of. Shining, even just reflecting dimly, the you know palely, the light of the moon um, really stands out uh, in the darkness. And Aeol, who seems to be part of that darkness, right? He he is a dark elf, um, which may have other meanings and not be simply a physical description. And yet, in the context here, it sounds almost physical, right? Like he is completely, uh, he is like a shadow uh, among the shadows, and they are these glowing moonlight, you know, moonlight shining, radiant figures um, uh, uh, going through the woods. So the, the the contrast there is extremely sharp between them. And where are we going with this? Why are we talking about this? That is to say, why are we? Uh, um, starting this poem here. What does this have to do with the poem? What? Yeah. This is Maeglin in the fall of Gondolin, Sarah King, exactly. And as Kate Neville says, just to explain the eventual betrayal. Absolutely. Isn't that fascinating? Isn't that fascinating that 
his choice here again in as much and it's, it's always you know I should kind of give a I should have given earlier a kind of a blanket uh, uh, apology uh, or disclaimer for the fact that in drawing any kinds of conclusions about any of these poems, uh, we have to be a little bit reckless, right? Because we get so little, and so to try to extrapolate uh, to things like, what was his plan for the the Fall of Gondolin poem, based on, you know, this like, handful of lines that we have, um, that's, we can't be at all sure, so we have to put lots of, you know, asterisks next to any of the the, the sort of conclusions that we suggest here. Um, but again, but if this is the beginning, uh, and that does, you know, in all of the rest of, of Tolkien's compositions, and looking at his composition process, he did seem to be, he did tend to begin at the beginnings. Uh, you know, he wasn't one who would, like, have a scene come to him and he'd do that, and then he, but that would end up being, you know, chapter five. That's not usually how he did things. Um, so I enter into this under the assumption that this is, in fact, going to be where the poem is going to open. And it's dramatically uh, intriguing and even appealing to begin with the story of the conception of Maeglin. Um And how, uh, you know, so, so that basically the whole story of the fall of Gondolin begins with the origin of the eventual traitor of Gondolin. And going back to this light and darkness images, isn't that interesting, right? That Maeglin, um in his... Uh, you know the, the the sort of again the, the the sort of the parentage and the roots of Maeglin are this like light in the darkness thing. He is the child of both the mirrored moon sheen and uh, the you know the 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 dark you know the 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 gloam of Doriath's forest. Um, he is the child of both of those things, and you know I wonder where we're going to see those things at war within him. Um, Maeglin's character, Meglin, as it was in the Book of Lost Tales, um, was much simpler, in a sense. Um, in, uh, I think, much simpler, in the Book of Lost Tales version, it, it's enough to make me wonder if we're going to, uh, if we're going to get a, uh, um, if we're going to get a, a, if we would have gotten uh, a much more complicated version of Meglin here, with the light and shadow things going on, I don't know. Um, but, uh, but anyway, it's, um, it's, it's very cool. Um, Sarah asks, would these be the literal first lines? Well, no, I, I skipped four of them, right? Uh, so the early first four lines would be, but yeah, no invocation of the Valar, that's kind of unusual, really, um, uh, to do. I mean, remember we were talking about that with, you know, when he revised the way of the children who are in the second version, he added that invocation at the beginning, right? Um, but that's not apparently. I mean, for, even 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 within the way of the children of Hurin, that's not where he started, right? The first version didn't contain that. Um, he decided to add it in, but none of these others really seem to start like that either. So, um, yeah, yeah. Um, Sorry, I just thought of something, which is really interesting. At least I find it interesting. Um, Thu's dark delved caverns. The dim bat skims from Thu's dark delved caverns. Thu, who will become Sauron. Um, Thu, the necromancer. 
will come to be associated with Tower Nufuin in the post-Laevlathian conception. Um, in the Laevlathian, Thu will be driven out as he is, as Sauron is in the published Silmarillion, and he will take refuge in Tower Nufuin as he does in the published Silmarillion. Um, and he will fill it with darkness and horror as he does in the published Silmarillion. Um, uh, which, of course, obviously establishes another link between Taranafuin in the Lay of, children, of the Children of Hurin uh, and the Lay of Lathian, and Mirkwood in The Hobbit, where the necromancer lives, right? Uh, and it's which is and filled with darkness and horror, possibly by the necromancer. Um, but uh, but notice, it seems to be Doriath. Based on what we can see here, the implication where only the dim bat skims from Thu's dark delved caverns. I mean, it's quite possible. Of maybe the dim bats uh, are have come a really long way from Thu's dark delved caverns, which are nowhere near Doriath. But that doesn't seem to be the implication of the line, right? It seems to suggest to me that the darkness of Thu the Necromancer is here in Doriath. Um, does this suggest that? his conception of Doriath in this time consisted in this, like, darkness versus light thing there. To, that is to say that we, that, that Thingol and Menegroth, that's a concept, though he wasn't named that, which goes back to the Book of Lost Tales. So the idea of that uh, Thingol and Melian are there in Doriath, but but Thu is also there. Um, like, uh, you know, like the way that you've got, uh, you've got, you know, Celeborn and Galadriel, and you've got uh, Thranduil, and you've got the you know Dol Guldur and the Necromancer in between. Is it more of that kind of a you know w- w- was that more like the situation that he's envisioning here? Um. Uh, you know, I don't know. I wonder. I wonder that I, I hadn't thought about that before. But uh, um, but yeah, exactly. Kate is saying Thu's caverns versus Thingol's caverns. Yeah, the, you've got the you've got the good caves and the bad caves, right? The good caves and the evil caves uh, here within Doriath. That seems entirely that seems entirely possible. Um, yeah, Tom Hillman says in this telling, Aeol and Isfin are virtually the anti-Baron and anti-Luthian. Yeah, uh, there's there there are creepy similarities there, right? Tom Tom was also remembering. Uh, was reminded of uh, of uh, Tolkien's poem, "The Shadow Bride," uh, or "The Shadow Man," as it was in the original version. Um, uh, which again, you can read "The Shadow Bride" in in, in the Adventures of Tom Bombadil. But uh, but again, it's it's this motif of this really creepy guy who sits there, who may or may not be turned into a statue, and then um, this woman comes by, and he like pounces and takes her underground to live with him forever. And it may or may not be creepy, or it might be romantic. She might have, like, he might be kidnapping her, or she might be disenchanting him. Not 100% clear, uh, especially in the earlier version of the poem. Um, but, uh, so yeah, I, uh, Tom, I agree, there's some similarities here, right? And, uh, and, uh, and, and of course, to, uh, uh, to, to, uh, uh, to the, uh, the, the Baron and Luthien story, I agree. I agree. Um, yeah, and uh, Kate Neville, Tom would add, uh, she was thinking of poor poor Myglin as being the anti Arendel, right? Yeah, exactly, the one who is destined to bring despair and destruction to the people, right? The prophecy, you know, that because there is almost that sense of prophecy. Remember, again, if you did the Book of Oz Tales class, remember the the weight 
the prophetic weight that was given, the, the nearly messianic terms in which Arendel was spoken of in the Book of Lost Tales, right? And from these two shall come one, you know, that then shall bestride the earth, the great one, that shall do that. I mean, Arendel was like, you know, was born to the blasting of, of, of fanfare, prophetic fanfares, right? Um, there is almost a similar, uh, a similar thing. Uh, with with Maeglin. again, we haven't gotten to the sort of prophecies of Maeglin's birth in the same way, but yeah, the portentousness of you know, and this is the story of how Maeglin came to be, and yet he's not to be the hero, but the villain, but the traitor. Um, and what a, again, I just I find that such a fascinating open opening uh, uh, to the story. And then Yana, of course, as you point out, Arendel in, in the Book of Lost Tales doesn't even do much when we finally get him. Um, yeah, so true, so true. Um, anyway, uh, I, I, I we, well, I was going to say we don't have time to talk much more about the fall of Gondolin, but there isn't much more of the fall of Gondolin, so that's okay. Um, let's uh, look at one of the other poems, and I'm going to, I'm not going to linger quite as long in each one of these passages, but uh, this is the opening. These are the first lines um, of the flight of the Noldoli. Um, so here, this is the beginning of the epic poetry treatment of. The rebellion of the Noldor, it would presumably, as Christopher says, have included the kinslaying and the prophecy of the North, and you know. So we we're, we're, we get, oh man, I add to my list of like things I really, really, really wish Tolkien had finished. Can you imagine the curse of Mandos in alliterative verse? Oh man, that would have ruled. Oh. Anyway. Um, and I'm presumably, you know, maybe the cro- the burning of the ships and the crossing of the Helcaraxa uh, would have been awesome. Great idea, um, though he doesn't get too far with it. But here's here's uh, here's the opening. Ah, the trees of light, tall and shapely, gold and silver, more glorious than the sun, than the moon more magical, or the meads of the gods, their fragrant frith and flower-laden gardens gleaming, once gladly shone. In death they are darkened. They drop their leaves from blackened branches, bled by Morgoth, and ungoliant the grim, the gloom weaver. In spider's form, despair and shadow, a shuddering fear and shapeless night, she weaves in a web of winding venom that is black and breathless. Their branches fail. The light and laughter of their leaves are quenched. Murk goes marching, mists of blackness, through the halls of the mighty, hushed and empty, the gates of the gods are in gloom mantled. Um, yeah, Karita, don't be thinking about Watership Down with Frith, it's a different Frith. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, unrelated. Um, <laughs> no, no relation uh, to Frith. Um, Yeah, James points out, look, uh, he, he says he loves a sudden transition from light to dark in lines five to six. Their fragrant frith and flower-laden gardens gleaming once gladly shone. In death they are darkened. They drop their leaves from the blackened branches. Um, yeah, I, James, that shift, right? The first five lines, we get five lines of the noontide of Valinor. Right, a five-line glimpse into the light and glory and splendor of Valinor beneath the trees. Not just the light. Um, that's the important thing about the frith. Right, the fragrant frith and flower-laden gardens gleaming. 
a, a frith, if I'm remember if I'm if I'm remembering this correctly. Uh, frith means uh, means like a fertile land, um, land that's growing and sprouting with things. Um, so that's why it's frith, fragrant frith and flower laden gardens. Um, so it's full of light, yes, but it's full of growth and it's full of life uh, and it's full of health. And then, um, James, as you point out, that, that, that incredibly sudden and jarring shift, in death they are darkened. It turns out that that description was just a kind of tease. The trees of light, tall and shapely, uh, gold and silver, more magical than the sun. Um, notice that the, the, there's a kind of, not exactly trick, but um, the first four lines make it sound like it's describing the present. Right, because of the way that in the flow of alliterative verse, the verb tends to be held until the end of the of the line. Right again, he's following Anglo-Saxon usage here. Um, the The consequence of that in that first sentence in the first five lines there is to give us a glimpse of the noontide of Valinor as it would have been, and then the horrible reality is kind of brought in like you know, it's, it's like the rug is pulled out from us at the end of the sentence, right? Once gladly shown. Oh, that's not how things are. right? I'm not describing a present thing. I'm telling you how things used to be. And then we get the present tense. In death they are darkened. They drop their leaves from the blackened branches bled by Morgoth. That's the present tense. Um, and it's... Uh, so I mean that I, I find that uh, really powerful. This is one of the um, yeah I'm fascinated in this passage again not not in the way that Christopher is focusing on it as being a, you know a really interesting treatment of the you know how is the story changing how is the 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 the, the mythology developing in Tolkien's mind but what's the story here right you know when he's sitting down to tell the story of the of the darkening of Valinor here. Um, how does he do it? I mean, this is one of the, uh, you know, this this kind of a comparatively extended, it's only 16 lines, but uh, comparatively extended poetic description of the darkening um, is uh, is great. I mean, I think it's really, um, um, I think it's really, um, I think it's really powerful. Um What else do you notice? Anything else strike you about this early passage here? And now think about, like we were thinking with the uh, Fall of Gondolin um, poem, the flight of the Noldoli. Where do we start? We start with the darkening of Valinor. But we start right after Valinor has been darkened. right? And again, those, those first you know, four or five lines really again jump out at me, right? The first moment of the poem is standing in the darkness after the darkening has happened, remembering back, looking back at the light, the trees of light, tall and shapely. Uh, yeah, yeah, good. Um, yeah, Sarah King says, drop their leaves. Something that really jumps out at her. Every other instance in Tolkien's work of leafless trees may be an echo of this. Um, it certainly is, Sarah King. I agree, a very powerful um, image there of, um, 
in death they are darkened, they drop their leaves. The um, the active verb there, um, the transitive verb, that is a transitive verb, of course, meaning a, a verb that has it that takes a direct object, an intransitive verb is a verb that doesn't take a direct object, so normally it's much more common to talk about leaves falling, right? That's an intransitive verb. Um, it's just talking about what the leaves are doing. Um, the trees are usually passive in the process of the leaf dropping. Again, that's, that's the more common way to sort of talk about it, but this is, you know, Sarah, an emphatically active thing, right? An, an emphatically transitive expression. It's the trees that are dropping their leaves because they're dead, right? It's emphasizing the death of the trees. It's not the fall of the leaves that matters. It's the death of the trees and the fact that, that not that their leaves are falling, but that they are dropping them. Um, it has been bled. The, the trees have been bled by Morgoth and Ungoliant, the Grim. Um, yeah, uh, Arthur says darkness is pers- personified some, uh, you know, more, more than light is. Or, well, Arthur, I mean, it seems, you know, clearly the the, the sort of personification, if that's the right word, arborification, of light is in the trees, right? The trees of light. Uh, so you've got the trees of light, which seem to embody light, and then you've got Ungoliant, the Grim, the Gloom Weaver, right? The, 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 the one who, in spider's form, weaves a web of winding venom, um, uh, you know, despair and shadow, um, yeah, she so she weaves in in a web of winding venom. She weaves despair, shadow, a shuddering fear, and shapeless night. In uh, a web of winding venom that is black and breathless. Yeah, and, and Nancy exactly the the arachnification of darkness. Yes, we've got the arborification versus the arachnification. Um, but those two images are really powerful. And these are not new, of course, right? He's. Uh, uh, he's he's you know Ungoliant the Gloom Weaver and the two trees long predate this you know version of the poem. It's not like it's an innovation, but again that's to me what's really interesting, right? If you're thinking it only in the big Silmarillion terms, right? If you're thinking of it only as you know this description is a stage in the development of the mythology, you sort of pass over that and be like, eh, nothing new there, right? It's all old stuff, right? So he's just he's still thinking the same thing as he was before, but the way that this comes out. Poetically, the way that those two are being balanced against each other strikes us much more forcibly. I think it was a good idea for him to do these stories in poetic form. I'm all in favor. I think the poetic versions are great. I wish he'd always written poetry. I wish The Lord of the Rings had been an epic poem instead of prose. But I suppose I probably am in a minority there. Um, But... uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good, good. Um, see, looking at uh, other comments here. Um, interesting. Sue Gifford says, uh, in, the, in the description of the death of the trees, uh, the branches fail. Um, 
Yeah, yeah, their branches fail. The light and laughter of their leaves are quenched. Um, uh, Sue says that it's uh, the death of the trees is depicted almost like a human death, uh, you know, like a, the, the, a body failing and dying. Um, yes, I, 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 that, that, that sort of the power of that is very much uh, sort of the equal of the power of, uh, of you know, depicting the death of a, of, of, of a person, sort of the light and life passing out of it. Um, yeah, yeah, but um, okay. Let's uh, let's go on and look at uh, look at some other things. So we begin with the darkening of Valinor. Um, oh wait, but I didn't follow up my question from before. What's interesting about this is the beginning point of the poem. What does this suggest to us? Just as we were making wild extrapolations about the beginning of the fall of Gondolin, let's make wild extrapolations about the beginning of this poem. And I've got a theory. My theory is Feanor. Um, of course, the the parallel between the trees and the Silmarils is is very clear and made explicit, not only in the earlier versions but in this very poem itself. After all, we get like a whole hundred and forty five lines of this poem, right? So we got we, we have a lot to judge. It's not reckless at all to make conclusions about that. Uh, I'm being sarcastic, but anyway, um, I wonder. Just as um, we're getting this sort of epic setup of Meglin and the planting of the seeds, you know, sort of the sowing of the seeds of treachery in the beginning of the Fall of Gondolin poem, which is a, fan, is, a, is, is a very interesting way to contextualize the story of the Fall of Gondolin. So here we're getting the death of the trees uh, and the, the, the really moving description of the death of the trees as, uh, you know, in the fading of the light and the dropping of the leaves and the failing of the branches as the context for the story of the rebellion of the Noldor, um, which ultimately, certainly in the published Silmarillion, one of the emphases of that story is that, you know, remember that moment in the published Silmarillion where we get the Valar mourning for the marring of Feanor. Um, and they consider that, you know, one of the worst of the deeds of Melkor, that Feanor is, you know, I mean, lots of Tolkien fans dislike Feanor, and he's kind of a jerk, but, uh, okay, that's a little bit of an understatement. He's a lot of a jerk. But he was the greatest of all of the elves. He was the most gifted, the most uh, uh, the most powerful. Um, the potential of Feanor was greater. He could have done such great things, and yet he was twisted. Um, and I wonder if we're getting sort of a the the if in the initial scene here we're sort of seeing but notice it's already too late right the trees we're not watching the trees die we're remembering the trees dying it's done right it's already happened valinor is dark at the beginning of this poem and at the beginning fanor's done right his 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 uh he's already crossed the rubicon um you know the the re- the, the the rebellion of fanor his turning point it's already happened um Fanor's heart is already darkened at the beginning of this poem, and I wonder if that's sort of where he was going with that. Um, I don't know. Um, yeah, Joe, I think there is a parallel between Fanor and Melkor. I think it's it's clearer uh, in the published Silmarillion uh, than certainly in these uh, in these poems. But um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Kurita is paralleling these statements uh, uh, 
Fanor was a bit of a jerk in the same way that Tolkien was a bit of a nerd. Uh, <laughs> okay, fair enough. Fair enough. Um, okay, okay. Um, two other passages that I found really interesting uh, in this, uh, you know, snippet of poem, uh, because we don't get anything like this, or at least nothing as much as this, uh, in any other treatment of the darkening of Valinor, was what was going on outside of Toon, right? Outside of the city of the gnomes. What did the darken? you know, uh, so what were the Teleri doing, right? Um, I don't even know, and if I missed something, tell me. But he didn't, he, he talked about, you know, he talks about the elves of Ing there in line 40. Um, these are the, 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 the group of elves which will later in the published Silmarillion be called the Vanyar. In the Book of Lost Tales, they were called the Teleri, and I can't tell from this poem whether or not he's changed that yet or not. Um, he's still calling the, no, the Noldor the Gnomes or the Noldoli, which are the terms that he did use uh, in the Book of Lost Tales. So therefore, like, unless proven otherwise, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep... Uh, I'm going to keep using the Book of Lost Tales terminology, though it's really confusing because the Teleri, who were the the are the, the 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 name Teleri, switched between the one group of elves and the other. So, what were the Van, the Vanyar, but originally the Teleri? Uh, anyway, so here's here's the description of what they were doing. What were they up to when Valinor was darkened? Of the three kindreds to that clamorous throng are none but the gnomes in numbers drawn. That it's to the throng there uh, to hear Feanor's speech. The elves of Ing to the ancient halls and starry gardens that stand and gleam upon Timbrinting, towering mountain, that day had climbed to the cloudy domed mansions of Manway for mirth and song. There Brethel the Blessed and the Blue Mantled, the Lady of the Heights, as lovely as the snow, in lights gleaming as of the legion of the stars, the cold immortal queen of mountains, too fair and terrible, too far and high for mortal eyes, and Manway's court sat silently as they sang to her. So that's what the Van- Vanyar were up to when the darkening of Valinor happened. They were... Um, singing to Varda, to Albereth, Brethel the Blessed. Notice how Brethel, uh, Brethel the Blessed there, um, notice the, what would seem to be an anticipation of Elbereth there, but I'm not going to get too far into that. I'm way too ignorant about his languages to, to, to say anything definite there. Um, but, um, yeah, Nancy, I agree. Nancy says, Varda doesn't come off too well here. She seems terribly distant and cold. Yeah, lovely as the snow, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I would also add, it's... Um, it also doesn't put her in the best light. So, Ungoliant and Melkor destroy the trees. So, Valinor's been darkened and everyone's like, Dude, where were you when Morgoth broke in and destroyed the trees? And seriously, Varda's gotta be all, I was, um, 
being worshipped. I was sitting there. They were singing hymns to me. I got caught up in the moment. Didn't notice Melkor coming in. Sorry. I, yeah, I mean, there's... Um, uh, it's not flattering, right? It doesn't seem flattering. I mean, I don't think it's meant to be a condemnation of her. It doesn't strike me as... I mean, I don't think this is like a jab uh, at Varda. Um, but it's... I mean, it's mirth and song that's going on, right? And why shouldn't they be singing uh, to uh, to Varda? And what would they be singing? <laughs> you got Karita anticipated me. What would they be singing? We can guess what they'd be singing, right? Snow White, Snow White, O Lady Clear, O Queen Beyond the Western Seas. Uh, the, the poem that uh, Gildor sings in the Shire, Gildor and Gildor's elves sing in the Shire, um, that's a song to Elbereth, right? Um, and notice we can see some of the same imagery here that we will still get uh, in The Fellowship of the Ring, right? As lovely as the snow. The cold, immortal queen of mountains. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, okay, Yana, you're right. It was kind of ironic to talk about Varda not being put in the best light. Uh, true, true, very true. Um, yeah, Joe asks, is this, is this the beginning of the gods' disregard of their task in Middle-earth? Well, no. <laughs> no, arguably, that began when uh, uh, when they invited the elves across. But, um, yeah, M- uh, Matthew asks, am I sure they're not singing tra-la-la-lali. Of course I'm sure they're not training, singing tra-la-la-lali, because that's what you sing when you're down in the valley. Uh, they're up on a mountain, so it would be something different. I don't know even what, know what it would be. <laughs> tra la la mountain here up on the mountain. Uh, something, something like that. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Certainly, whether or not this is meant to be a criticism of Varda herself, it does. It not only gives us a glimpse of the Vanyar, but it gives us a glimpse of the Valar. One of the things of which Feanor is going to accuse them is being remote and uncaring. And then we look at this and we're like, mm, well, it's a fair cop, right? Uh, uh, they got Varda banged to rights on that one. Um, <laughs> Sorry. Several people are suggesting alternative lyrics. Uh, <laughs> Tra-la-la-leak, here up on the peak. Nancy Fosberg suggests tra-la-la-lily, high up on the hilly. Uh, almost exactly. Karina and Matthew Hershenroder suggested that same thing at the same time. Yeah, yeah, very good, very good. Um, Sarah King says they do care. They just care for things that are remote, like the legions of the stars, right, Sarah? Um, yeah, yeah, um... But anyway, it's you know, it's 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 interesting that we get this glimpse because it does seem to suggest there is potentially some truth in Feanor's accusations. Feanor is not just crazed. Feanor is not just me- megalomaniacal. He is not just manipulative. He is all those things, but he's not just those things. Um, there is some kind of substance there. Um, but um, yeah, good, good. Um, then, of course, we get the parallel passage. What the Solo Simpi were doing. The Solo Simpi, that's the Book of Lost Tales term of the the elves, which will, in the published Silmarillion, be called the Teleri, the, the sea elves, down by the coast. 
the foam riders, folk of waters, elves of the endless echoing beaches, of the bays and grottoes and the blue lagoons, of silver sands sown with moonlit, starlit, sunlit stones of crystal, pale burning gems, pearls and opals on their shining shingle, where now shadows groping clutched their laughter. Quenched in mourning, their mirth and wonder, in a maze wandered, under cliffs grown cold, calling dimly, or in shrouded ships shuddering waited, for the light no more should be lit forever. Wow. Wow. Um, first of all, notice that this is one sentence, right? Um... The foam riders is the subject of the sentence. What's the verb? What's the verb? This is always a fun game to play. Identify the verb of the sentence. Wandered. Got it. Yes, wandered. Um, waited, yeah, you get credit for waited too, because it's parallel, right? The foam riders, who who are the foam riders? Folk of waters, elves of the endless echoing beaches. What beaches? Of the bays and grottoes, the blue lagoons, of silver sands, some of the, all that stuff is the description of who they're the folk of, right? So the foam riders, you know, those people. Oh, the, those people of the beaches. What are the beaches like? Oh, the beaches are like this. Oh, wait, but what are the beaches like now? Now the beaches are like this. But we're still all just describing the foam riders and who they are, right? Um, in a maze, wandered. In a maze, adverbial phrase, wandered under cliffs, calling dimly, or in shrouded ships, shuddering, waited. So yes, the foam riders wandered or waited. That's, th- those, are, those, are, those are the verbs. Um, But the imagery, the light and darkness imagery here, wow. The, the, the verb, this is the verb within the clause now, not the main verb of the sentence, that clutched. I f- that clutched is my favorite word in this whole passage. Um, again, notice how this rolls. It's like those first four lines again. The foam riders, folk of waters, elves of the endless echoing beaches. Oh, let me tell you more about the beaches. Of the bays and the grottoes and the blue lagoons. Of silver sands sown with mo- with with sown with 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 crystal gems, pearls, and opals. But wait, wait. Let me tell you. Let me emphasize more the light, the shining. The, what a resplendent land this was. Moonlit, sun, starlit, sunlit stones of crystal. Right. Every time of the day or night there is light here, shimmering and shining and glistening on the jewels and gems. Just amazing. And so on those beaches, yeah, yeah, you know, those those, those beaches with all the, you know, the, the, the pale burning stuff uh, and that the shining shingle, you know, the, the, that, that beach where now shadows groping clutched their laughter, quenched in mourning their mirth and wonder. So then so this the beaches where now and the action of the verb take the action of the sentence, the action of the story, the coming in of the darkness, the effect of the darkening of Valinor upon them comes in not in the main verb of the sentence, but in the subordinate clauses, right? In the second half of the descriptions of the beaches. So the these 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 clauses describing the beaches are where the action happens, 
right? The shift from the beautiful shining light to the shadows all of a sudden groping out, clutching their laughter. That image is an incredible image. The groping shadow clutched their laughter, quenched in mourning their mirth and wonder. So we had they, they were laughing, they were mirthful, they were wondering, and now the shadows suddenly come in and clench, clutch and quench that. And their wonder is turned to wandering and to shuddering waiting for the light that no more should be lit forever. Just incredible. So good. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, good, yeah. Several of you, Josiah and Sarah, are saying, hang on a second, why is why, why are they moonlit and sunlit when the moon and sun haven't happened yet? Excellent questions. I don't know. No idea. Does this suggest that he was changing the sequence of things? Hard to imagine. I mean, how do we get to the sun and moon before the trees are destroyed? I don't know. Um, is he using those metaphorically? You know? Like, there is no adjective, like, moonlit. You know, you wouldn't be like Telperian lit, right? Uh, that's not a good adjective. Um, so we go moonlit instead, because it is the light of the moon indirectly. Uh, yeah, Nancy says, I wondered that too, but it seemed churlish to uh, uh, to, uh, to, to, to sort of uh, you know, quibble at such a gorgeous phrase. Yeah, no, but I mean, it, 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 but it's a fair question. It is a fair question, and, and it seems to me that the the desire to represent the visual imagery, that is to to depict in this moment because all three forms of light are present, right? Though the sun and moon aren't up in the sky yet, but the yellow light of the sun, the silver light of the moon, and the the the, the fainter and very very different textured light of the stars are all present, right? They are all there, and they are all glimmering on the stones of crystal, pale burning gems, pearls, and opals on the shining shingle. Um, and so, in three short words, he manages to convey that without having to use the sort of um, um, uh, the, the sort of uh, uh, um, greater indirection that's going to be that's going to be required um, yeah good uh, yeah Kate of course yeah Christopher does talk about this um, you know uh, the theory Kate suggests and that Josiah um, suggests seems to me perfectly plausible that this was supposed to have, this poem was supposed to have been written by a poet later on, um, and who is you know using these images because that's what he's familiar with, and so that's how he talks about it. Um, by the way, this seems to me another good reason why we've shifted to alliterative verse from that you know hexameter kind of awkward hexameter couplet thing that he was doing in the fall of Gondolin because who are the later poets who are retelling these stories through whom are these poems being transmitted through the Anglo-Saxons of course uh, that is through Alf Winna of England uh, in the later version of the Book of Lost Tales so you know the uh, the early Anglo-Saxons are in Tolkien's conception at this point the ones who are the transmitters of these stories of fairies so um, so of course of course of course they're going to be told in alliterative verse what else would they be told in right um so certainly thinking from that perspective it kind of makes uh, makes uh, a lot of uh, 
a lot of sense. Um, yeah. Anyway, um, so I, I, just, I, I find this depiction of the the chagrin of the of the foam riders of the solo simpi chagrin. Boy, what a what an understatement that is. Um, uh, just so uh, so powerful. And then of course, it's impossible not to be thinking about the the um, the kinslaying, right? What do they do <clears throat> when they're wandering and waiting, shuddering, waiting? What do they do? They wait in shrouded ships for the light. They take refuge in their ships, right? Well, the light's gone. Their shining shingle isn't shining anymore, right? All of the beauty and the light of the world seems to have faded or just been extinguished and they're terrified and they don't know what's happening. They're far enough removed geographically from this to not be able to see what just happened or as if that would be comforting. But anyway, you know, just all of a sudden these groping shadows have clutched their laughter. So what do they do? They hide in their ships, right? They take refuge in their ships because at least they have that still, right? All of the light and glory and beauty of their city and their land might have suddenly been snuffed out, but at least they still have their ships, right? That's something anyway. Awful, isn't it? Awful, isn't it? And then think of the burning of the ships. Oh, awful, awful. Anyway. Um, okay, one last uh, passage here. Then we'll, uh, then we'll move on to Arendel briefly. <clears throat> Here's some of Fanor's, Fanor's speech. Thus the witless wisdom its reward hath earned of the gods' jealousy, who guard us here to serve them, sing to them in our sweet cages, to contrive them gems and jeweled trinkets, their leisure to please with our loveliness, while they waste and squander work of ages, nor can Morgoth master in their mansions sitting at countless councils. I believe that means nor can Morgoth, nor can they master Morgoth. It's not Morgoth mastering them, but they are also incapable of mastering Morgoth. Is I think what, clearly what he's saying there. Now come ye all who have courage and hope. My call hearken to flight to freedom in far places, the woods of the world whose wide mansions yet in darkness dream, drowned in slumber, the pathless plains and perilous shores no moon yet shines on, nor mounting dawn in dew and daylight hath drenched forever, yet far better were these for bold footsteps than gardens of the gods gloom-encircled, with idleness-filled and empty days. Yea, though the light lit them, and the loveliness beyond heart's desire that hath held us slaves here long and long, but that light is dead. Wow, wow! I, this is really good. I, I, I think um, thinking about the way that Tolkien's revisions tended to happen. You know, even just thinking about the the, the, the kind of the pattern of revision that we saw between the first and the second version of the Lay of the Children of Hurin, I would guess that if Tolkien had come back to this and done a, a major revision of this, had he really expanded this, I bet we would have gotten more of this. This His speech, Fanor's speeches seem short to me. Um, uh, I would have expected them to go on a good deal longer, but um, but uh, how does he depict things? Forget what the published Silmarillion says here. It contains an echo of some of these things, but the emphases are not the same, and the priorities that he gives to things are not the same here. How does he characterize 
the life of the gnomes. What reason does he give for leaving in this passage? Yeah, Kate wishes uh, Christopher had interpolated this into the Silmarillion. It would have been really cool. Um, yeah, Sarah King says it's, uh, she can't help but think of Milton Satan here. Better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. There's I, Sarah, I can see where you're coming from there. Um, I'm thinking in particular, uh, uh, far better were these for bold footsteps than the gardens of the gods gloom encircled, right? But it's not exactly, right? He's not saying better to live to, to, to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. Um, because, of course, the gardens of the gods, notice how pathetic, the, it's, not the, it's not just heaven, right? Yeah, they're the gardens of the gods, they're, but they're gloom encircled, right? Um, with idleness filled and empty days. Um, they were never that great, actually, right? They're filled with idleness and empty days. The time in Valinor is pointless, Right? We've been brought here, we've been put on the shelf here, right? Or rather, we've been put to work for the Valar. Um, we make them trinkets, that's what we do, right? Notice how the opening lines here anticipate the enthrallment of the Noldor by Melkor, right? What does he do when he, 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 he doesn't waste any of the Noldor when he captures them in, in, in the wars of the First Age in Beleriand, right? He doesn't waste a single Noldor, he puts them to work because they're really good, Right? He makes them mine for him and shape things for him, um, just as as Fanor here is accusing the Valar of doing, right? Um, amazing, amazing. Um, so what? A, what it's a, th- that's both sort of a foreshadowing and anticipation, but also sort of an indictment, right? Even when we see like, oh. There's dramatic irony here, right? He, the way that he's describing the Valar, the Valar treating uh, the Noldor, is like this, you know, this ironic anticipation of what Melkor will actually do, right? Yeah, but I think if even if you were to be able to point that out to Fanor, he would say, "Yeah, exactly, exactly." That's kind of my point, right? How are they better than than Morgoth? Of course, Morgoth would do that. It's just what they did. Right, um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And as Tom says, not only were we slaves, we were bored slaves. Um, absolutely, absolutely. Um, there's another point I wanted to make. I lost my train of thought, though. Um, Notice how the primary indictment against the Valar here is essentially idleness. Nothing happens here. Nothing is going on. Idleness and empty days, right? That's what the the, the gardens of the gods are like. Yea, though the light lit them and the loveliness beyond heart's desire that held us slaves here long and long. Yes, um, they were beautiful, but the beauty of Valinor is a trap. It was always a trap. We were enticed by it. We were drawn here, attracted by this loveliness, by the loveliness beyond heart's desire, but it enslaved us when we should have been in Middle-earth making our own lives, making our own realms, 
doing something. Instead, we've just been hanging out here. Oh, kind of like the Vanyar up on the mountain, right? Um, Worshipping Varda. Um, it was a, so Notice how he's twisted things around by line 102? But that light is dead. Oh, so why bother staying? Right? Thalinor is dark now. Let's blow this joint. This place is lame now. Right? No, that's not what he's saying. Right? The light of Valinor has been destroyed. The beauty of the realm has been destroyed. Morgoth has wrecked this place, and they were helpless to stop it. Why should we stay? Right? They can't more they can't master Morgoth, right? So the darkening of Valinor proves the the impotence of the Valar. So why should we obey them? Right? Is that what he's saying when he says, but that light is dead? Kind of. But there's more, right? Notice the implication? Exactly, Arthur. The light enslaved them, but that light is dead. The darkening of Valinor is not the tragedy which leads them to go into exile, right? Or which makes them decide to leave because nothing is left for them here. It has set them free. Right? The darkening of Valinor. Feanor argues. And again, think of that description of the, the groping shadows clutching the laughter of the solo simpi. Um, Feanor says, the death of the light is a good thing. It has set us free. Now we shall no longer be held enslaved by the loveliness beyond heart desire, by the light that lit them. Um, <laughs> Arthur says Feanor is a free elf. Yeah, exactly. It's like it's like he just caught a sock. Um, absolutely. Um, kind of amazing. I mean, there's so notice again. There's there's something you know, the the like, desire for establishing wide realms of their own. The uh, the 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 impotence of the Valar, their um, you know uh, pointless sitting around and not doing anything. All of those things, um, all of those things are you know survive. We 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 get those things in the published Silmarillion. But man, that final turn, we were enslaved by the beauty of Valinor, and now it is gone, and we are free. Fanor didn't say that in the poem, and that's amazing. Uh, that's really kind of incredible. Um, yeah, the, elf, the, the the gnomes are for the gnomes, uh, says Brandon. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay. Um, well, let's um, let's turn and look briefly. I keep saying, I keep hoping that it will be brief. Um, yeah, it's okay. Let's turn and look for as long as we want uh, at the Arendel poem. Um, the the Arendel poem, which, by the way, is as Christopher explains, sort of hardest to guess what this poem is going to be. It's not labeled, right? It doesn't it's not given a title, um, but uh, so it's only Christopher's conjecture that this was going to be a poem of Arendel. But that seems, I mean, I, I agree with him. His reasoning seems to be excellent. Um, but uh, but it's funny, you know, the, again, the big. Story of Arendel, the big, most important story, which he never, ever, ever, ever tells. <laughs> in which, ironically, like Bilbo's poem in Rivendell, 
is just about the fullest version of the A. Arundel story that we ever, ever get in Tolkien's works uh, over the course of his entire life. Anyway, sorry. Okay. I'm not bitter about that or anything. Um, let's look at the opening of this third poem. Lo, the flame of fire and fierce hatred engulfed Gondolin, and its glory fell. Its tapering towers and its tall rooftops were laid all low, and its leaping fountains made music made no music more on the mount of Gwarath, and its white-hewn walls were whispering ash. But Wade of the Helsings, weary-hearted, tour the earthborn, was tried in battle, from the rack and ruin a remnant led. Women and children, and wailing maidens, and wounded men of the withered folk, down the path unproven that pierced the hillside, neath Tomb Laden he led them, to the leaguer of hills that rose up rugged as ranged pinnacles to the north of the vale. Okay. Um, kind of cool, huh? To get the opening lines of the Fall of Gondolin poem, right? Let's start with Meglin, with Meglin, uh, or Meglin, I'm not sure what he was going to be called. And uh, and then we get the opening of the Arendel poem, which ends with the Fall of Gondolin, or begins, begins with the end of the Fall of Gondolin poem. Um, so we have, uh, we get the whole thing except all of the middle. Or really, almost all of the story. Um... Uh, yeah, Kate, I, I, I agree. Kate Neville says, Isn't it ironic that the simple name Eärendil uh, set Tolkien off on this whole mythological journey, but he could never find his way to telling that story to his satisfaction? Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, says, uh, she says, Tolkien was trapped like Eärendil until Elwing came with the Silmaril. Um, yeah, maybe, except, I don't know, I guess it never arrived, because he never does tell it, uh, really. But anyway, yeah. Um, okay. The big feature of this uh, poem, as Christopher points out, um, um, the, uh, um, the, 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 you know, remember Christopher in his commentary after this poem says, there's really only one item of interest in this whole poem. Um, and uh, and I knew just what it was when reading it through. Wade of the Helsings. Weary-hearted. Um, now, I'm not going to go into great detail on Wade of the Helsings, because Christopher Tolkien does a great job explaining He explains that at length, and it's a fascinating uh, explanation. If you are in the... Uh, I don't know if any of you are developing like the anti-habit that so often plagues people reading The Lord of the Rings, right? I've often criticized people for reading the prose and skipping the poems, right, as they go through The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. Um, I, I, I don't know if many of you are reading through the poems and, and skipping the prose <laughs> in the ways of Beleriand as we're going through. Um, if we are, I encourage you not to. Uh, Christopher's commentary is very interesting, and as I say, I'm, uh, I'm not... Um, in my discussions here of these works, I'm sort of deliberately steering clear of the stuff that Christopher Tolkien talks about because I don't need to say that stuff again. He's already he's already said all that, right? And he's done. And you know, so his his discussions are excellent. Um, I don't I don't I don't want anyone to think that uh, I'm uh, you know sort of writing them off or you know sort of shoving them aside. Um, rather, I'm kind of taking them as a given as we move forward. So I'm not going to explain the whole history of Wade of the Helsings. Um, 
other than just to, to kind of comment on um, uh, to sort of comment on the uh, um, the significance of the fact that that's been put in here, right? Um, as Christopher explains, the Wade um, Wald um, is a a legendary hero. He's obviously huge. I mean, the stories of Wade, the, the references that we have to Wade show that he is a, a like a standard like a, a folklore hero. Everybody knows Wade. Everybody knows the stories of Wade. Um, people are, are are clearly like in the in the in the Middle Ages. People are growing up with stories of Wade, like you know, like you know, this is you know, they're like bring, taking those in with their mother's milk. Um, but we know very few stories about him. None of them are written down. We don't have there is there doesn't ex- I don't remember if I'm forgetting. Remind me of one, but I don't remember a single written version of any full story of Wade. Um, he's so he's this figure that gets again gets alluded to, and always alluded to in the sense of what you know. It's like Wade. You guys know Wade, right? Um, and yet, it's so well known that nobody bothers to summarize it. Nobody bothers to tell it. Um, they just take it as a given. And therefore, it's an incredibly tantalizing story. And, again, if you know anything about Tolkien at all, you can see how attracted he would be to this idea, right? Um, to say, okay, this figure of Wade. Um, who was he? What is his story? Um, what is the oral tradition that underlies these re- these references in written in written poems throughout the Middle Ages. Who was he really? Um, and the idea that that concept, that he would at least even just flirt with the idea of incorporating that into his mythology. And of course we see what's what's the answer? Who is Wade? Tour. Right? Or Tour, as he's called here. Um, uh, Tour is Wade. Um, the father of Arendel. And, um, and of course, you know, he goes on to mention there's, uh, Christopher mentions that one uh, incredibly tantalizing and significant for Tolkien fans uh, reference to Wade um, where it's, it's t- where he has his uh, ship Gwingalot, um, uh, which seems what was Christopher's very understated phrase uh, uh, you know, the, the, his, it's his, high, his very significantly named ship Gwingalot. Um, uh, it's um, yeah. It's it's uh, it's it, he. It seems fairly clear, even just from that that name, the fact that Wade apparently, whoever else he was or whatever else he did, he apparently had a ship named Gwingalot. Um, this seems to be I don't I don't want to say at the root of but at least associated with the story of Tuor and Eärendil from the beginning. Um, it's what's fascinating to me on reading this, the fact that he just threw out the Wade reference uh, in this uh, in this poem. Honestly, my response to that is not wow, where's that coming from? It's obvious. I mean, like it's that's such that's like 
so right up Tolkien's alley. Um, the question becomes, wow, why didn't he do that in the Book of Lost Tales? Right? How did Wade not come up in the Book of Lost Tales? Right? Wouldn't you think, I mean, especially the idea, Wingalot is there from the beginning. Um, you know, Wingalot is the name of the ship in the Book of Lost Tales, so um, the connection to, I mean, it's that was probably, almost certainly, um, based on the name of Wade's ship, so um, you know, it seems to be there, it seems to have been there in his mind, and yet that connection isn't made. I can unless I'm forgetting it, but I don't think I am. Um, he doesn't go anywhere near that in the Book of Lost Tales. Why not? That would have been so cool. Uh, it would have been great to 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 see more on how how was he going to develop the story of Wade, and how in how was that going to be going to be linked in um, to uh, uh, to the story of Arendelle as he was going to go on and tell it if he had ever gotten to go on and tell it uh, in this poem. Um, and that, and again, so thinking about the, the fact that this is in a literature verse, right, and the way that that makes sense in the context of where he ended the Book of Lost Tales with Alfwina of England and the idea of all of these st- stories of the ancient Elvish realms being transmitted through the Anglo-Saxons and through Anglo-Saxon oral tradition, of course, of course we would expect that Wade would be involved there. Right, that this mysterious figure of Wade would probably be one of those characters, right, whose context had been forgotten uh, and unfortunately his story never written down. Gosh, in fact, doesn't that seem like a joke, right? Uh, Wade, the sto- the character who is super super important but never, uh, but whose story is never actually written down and fully told. What else does he have in common with Arendel, right? Apart from his boat, uh, that's actually a really fascinating parallel, though I can't imagine it's one that Tolkien intended, as he seems to have tried to come back to tell the story of Arendel again and again. But from the vantage point of the end of his life, uh, you know, looking back on his whole career, it certainly seems a very pointed irony, uh, that connection between Wade and Arendel. But, um, yeah, sir, sir, not appearing in this tale, Tom. Exactly, exactly, sir, sir, not appearing in this mythology. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, but it's it, this is a this is a classic example, not the greatest example to talk about because there's so little detail here. Um, but this is the kind of thing that Tolkien loved to do. This is one of those things which is, you know, one of the places where we can see the. Not even crossover. Crossover is such an inadequate word. Um, the the oneness, even I want to say, um, the, the 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 continuity between Tolkien's professional life and his creative life, um, the way in which his subcreation is the most perfect expression of his scholarly analysis of you know, ancient literatures and ancient languages. And, um, and his, his, his thinking and, and, and imagining of those things, uh, really, um, works together. Or as I said, it's not even working together. They, they, it's like, they are the same. Um, it's how he thinks, it's how he works. Whether he's thinking about, you know, uh, goths and the ancient, and ancient gothic, or whether he's thinking about, um, you know, or, or whether he's thinking about you know Sigurd and Gudrun, 
or whether he's thinking about Beowulf and uh, uh, you know and the Selic uh, spell, or whether he's thinking about you know Wade and Tuor, um, you know all of these things are it seem to me just sort of part of that same fundamentally creative impulse. The way in which Tolkien's Tolkien sort of thought through these things by. Um, Imagining by investing in them imaginatively through subcreation, Tolkien was, um, you know, as as I've been saying for a while now, Tolkien was not really fundamentally a teacher. He was a poet. Um, he thought poetically, not analytically. Um, some have said there's um, there's been uh, mixed reviews of Tolkien's lectures. At Oxford, um, you find some of his former students who obviously found his lectures to be a, a life-changing experience. W. H. Auden, of course, comes to mind, who was deeply, profoundly affected by uh, Tolkien's lectures in Anglo-Saxon, and you know was a sort of a friend and correspondent of Tolkien's throughout his life. Um, you read some accounts of Tolkien's students. Um, where it sounds like they actually kind of hated him as a lecturer and that his classes were really uh, difficult to follow uh, and uh, even difficult to hear. That is, it, his actual speech was hard to follow because he spoke really quickly and indistinctly. Um, so again, the very mixed reviews of his teaching, but that's what I would expect. His gift was never in clear and lucid expository prose. One reading of On Fairy Stories will show you that. Um, unlike C.S. Lewis, for instance, who was an excellent writer of expository prose and a fantastic explainer of things in clear and approachable logical language, Lewis excelled at that. That's how he thought. That's how he worked. Tolkien did not. That is not how he thought. How he thought was as a poet. And we can see uh, so I, I just love this little glimpse. And, and though again, wait, let me finish my thought. So it doesn't surprise me that um, the fact that he connected with things this way would leave his remarks on, you know, his his lectures on Anglo-Saxon a puzzle to some who found them impossible to follow and mind-blowing to some. Right? That's kind of exactly what I would have expected, really. Um, but anyhow, uh, here again, we can just see a very distant glimpse of that same kind of sub-creative, imaginative process at work again. Um, and the, that this one-line tantalizing hint of, I'm going to develop the story of Tuor and Eärendil in an alliterative epic poem, which is also going to turn out to be the story of Wade that was never written down and nobody ever told before, right? That is so cool, and I would have loved to read this poem too. As you can see, Tolkien never started a fragment that I didn't re that I don't really want to see the end of. Uh, that's uh, that's 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 pretty true. Look at um, look at the end of the fragment here. Um, All this have others in ancient stories and songs unfolded, but say I further how their lot was lightened. That's all. All this. This is that is at the end of the description of the 
the the sufferings of the survivors of Gondolin, right? Um, how they how they escape, and we got a brief description of the fall of Gorfindel and fight with the Balrog, and and then how they wandered for thirty months, right, and suffered and and everything. So that's the all this that he's referring to. All this have others in ancient stories and songs unfolded. But say I further how their lot was lightened, how they laid them down in long grasses in the land of willows. Their sun was softer. Something. The sweet breezes and whispering words, their their wells of slumber and the dew enchanted. Um, the those first two lines are to me the really fascinating thing, the eye that we hear here, right? The poetic, the narrative framework um, that uh, we get a brief glimpse of, right? how the speaker of this poem, the narrator of this poem, is explicitly contextualizing this poem in the context of other stories of ancient times, right? You've heard other songs, right? Like, I don't know, maybe maybe one about the flight of the Noldoli, maybe one about the fall of Gondolin, maybe, because you, you, you might have heard that one, um, maybe the, the lay of the children of Horan. Um, but I say further, right? So I've just recalled to your memory this other song, this other poem that you may or may not have heard. Now I'm going to start telling you what I'm telling. But again, in the context of these ancient stories and songs unfolded. All this have others in ancient stories and songs unfolded. I'm going to unfold something else to you now, right? But again, notice it's not the the, the reference to ancientry. He, um, uh, the, the reference to ancientry here is not just a reference to how distant these events were compared to the narrator. Right? This is not just like an Anglo-Saxon bard um, saying that the fall of Gondolin was in ancient days. Right? What's ancient? What is he referring to as ancient there in, in the first line of that fragment? Another uh, syntax quiz. What's ancient? Yeah, James, the stories themselves are ancient. Exactly. This is a modern poet, right, in context of the Anglo-Saxon period, right? A modern poet who is not only speaking of ancient days, not only singing a song of ancient days, but singing a song which is connected to ancient songs of even more ancient days, right? So the stories of the fall of Gondolin are ancient. Um, not just the not just the events, but the song itself, the story itself is an ancient story. Ancient stories and songs have unfolded these things about the fall of Gondolin, but I say further, right? I'm going to go on and tell you. I, the modern, am going to tell you what happened elsewhere. I'm going to tell you my modern version of this ancient story. Um, the the self-consciousness that this, again, this tiny little glimpse of a frame, right? Um, of a narrative frame, but that glimpse puts this poem self-consciously into this ancient tradition of looking back and retelling. I guess I think back to Wade in the beginning of that that earlier poem, right? The way in which we're going to go back and um, 
sort of flesh out ancient stories. That's what the speaker of this poem is self-consciously doing, right? I'm going to go back to those ancient stories that you've heard about the fall of, and I'm going to tell you more, right? I'm going to I'm going to give you more about that. Really interesting. And yes, I agree, Karita, terribly ironic that I say further is practically the last thing that he says in this poem, right? I say further, never mind, uh, I'm good, actually. <laughs> it, is, it is kind of ironic, um, but, uh, and, and kind of sad. Yeah, it's true. Okay, good. Well, we got through all three of the fragments, everything except Lightest Leaf on Linden Tree again, but that's okay. I had been, The reason I had been planning to do that last today anyway is that I want to look at Light as, Leaf on Linden, uh, Light as Leaf on Linden Tree as a transition into the Lay of Lathian anyhow. Um, so we'll start with that next time. So go back. It's now, now that it's been, for it will have been like three weeks, go back and reread that the that poem, that uh, uh, that stanzaic, rhyming, me- uh, uh, s- syllabic poem in the middle of the second version of uh, the Lay of the Children of Hurin, um, the Baron and Luthien, the poetic treatment of the Baron and Luthien story. Go back and reread that. It's the you know it's the the the, the original version that gets uh, revised into Aragorn's song of Baron and Luthien that he sings under Weathertop. Um, go back and reread that. Not not. Aragorn's version, the the Children of Hurin version. Go back and reread that. We'll start with that, and um, uh, and we will then move forward from there into the Lay of Lathian, which seems, as we were saying last time, clearly what Tolkien himself is doing. So we'll we will uh, uh, watch as Tolkien obeys. You know, finally succumbs to the creative pressure to uh, tell the Baron and Luthian story, and we'll start. The Lay of Lathian after we do Lightest Leaf on Linden Tree next time. So, thanks very much, everybody. I will see you guys in a week where I will be home. I think it looks like my internet connection, uh, uh, you know, go go mobile hotspot here tonight. Looks like we did, worked out okay. I'm very glad of that. Um, tomorrow, next week, I'll be back uh, in my in my normal surroundings with my normal lighting and uh, my normal high speed internet connection, which will make me very happy. Thanks, everybody. Look forward to talking to you guys next week, and I will see you then. Bye now.